And you might say that the history of the American government since the end of the Vietnam War has been an attempt to destroy that spirit of rebellion that arose in the 1960s to control people more. Everything the government has been doing, the, kind, the way it has waged wars, the way it has established control, the way it has made liaisons with the major media, uh, right up to the Homeland Security Act, I think all of that, but it's important to take note of that. They don't want an excess of democracy. Our job is to have an excess of democracy. That's Howard Zinn, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Howard Zinn, Questions and Answers in Albuquerque, a special program celebrating the Zinn centenary. There are piles and piles of tapes in Alternative Radio's 400-square-foot office. And under one pile, I uncovered this recording of the legendary historian Howard Zinn in conversation with students and faculty at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. I recorded the event in a jam-packed classroom on a warm afternoon in September 2002. Zinn led an extraordinary life. His work continues to influence many. He passed away in 2010 at the age of 87. His friend and fellow activist Noam Chomsky said of him, whenever there was a struggle for peace and justice, Howard was there on the front lines, unflagging in his enthusiasm and inspiring in his integrity, engagement, eloquence, and insight. Howard Zinn's life and work are an unforgettable model, sure to leave a permanent stamp on how history is understood and how a decent and honorable life should be lived. And now, Howard Zinn. This is supposed to be a question and answer session, right? I'm not giving a lecture. You're supposed to ask questions, and I'm supposed to pretend to answer them. So, you have questions? <laughs> yes. Do you have any idea how we can move past this culture of denial? I mean, how is it possible that we can go forward and, and kind of fight the fight, you know, with everyone? I mean, there's almost resistance to the truth on every level that you, you go to. Well, the way people always have. <laughs> truth has always been denied by people in power, and there always been people who tried to resist that, oppose that, bring forth the truth. It's, and it's always taken time and persistence. I mean, you can go back to the anti-slavery movement, right? I mean, the, the slavery was not just supported in the South, it was supported in the North. The first abolitionists, the first people who spoke out against slavery in the North were stoned and attacked and some of them killed. Yeah, there was a culture of denial then you know, about slavery. But what happened? The movement grew. People persisted. This, people took risks. And this has been true of every movement. Every movement looks as if it's hopeless at the beginning. People seem as if they have no power. They look at recent history. This is the story of the civil rights movement, of the women's movement, you know, of the anti-war movement against the Vietnam War. And as I say, it goes back. You know, the abolitionists started with a small group of people. By the 18, late 1850s, they were a national phenomenon. 
by the 1860s, by the time of the Civil War, Lincoln had to reckon with them, even though he was not an abolitionist. He was willing to put up with slavery so long as they could bring the southern states back in the Union, but the movement was too strong by So, you know, what do we do? The most important thing we can do is not hold back, not be intimidated by your neighbors, by the people in your workplace, by your employer, by anybody around you, by your father, your mother, by whoever wants to stifle you, whoever has uh, authority in your situation. And, uh, and because if more people speak out, it encourages more, more and more people to speak out. And we do have you know, ways of getting around or through this, the openings that the, the system, and the American system is a controlled system. But what makes it able to call itself democratic is it has little openings. And they say, you see how democratic we are? You know, well, we, we've got to take advantage of those openings. They are gambling that we won't take advantage of those openings, that we won't enlarge them. But we have to take advantage of alternative radio, alternative radio stations, alternative newspapers, local movements, protests, classrooms, teach-ins. That's how it's done. So it's, it's really up to us. Yes. The American press seems to be shrinking. I'd, I'd say the independent press is shrinking and uh, becoming a few corporations. Uh, in view of your answer to the previous question, do you see any hope there? There's not much hope in the major media. <laughs> There's not much hope in the major television networks or in the major newspapers. Uh, you know, Bush just made a speech before the UN, you know, a speech which was full of nonsense and holes. And what happens, the New York Times the next day responds with feeble kind of criticism. The Boston Globe, my hometown newspaper, similarly. And so, no, you can't depend on the major press, the major newspapers. You, you can depend on what movements have always depended on, and that is alternative sources of information, which we, we have to create by ourselves, people's sources of information. Now, sure, you try to use the major media as much as you can. The, send letters to the editor. Some of them get printed. Call in on terrible talk shows. <laughs> and most talk shows are terrible. Most talk shows are, you know, dominated by what's his name. I, I hate to even mention his name. What, Rush Limbaugh and people like that, right? But sometimes you can get a, a voice in. I, I get interviewed by radio stations, not by NBC or CBS. I was interviewed last week by a network of black radio stations around the country. And it, it was refreshing that, you know, the, the interviewer, an African-American woman, it was refreshing to hear her ask questions of me which I really didn't have to answer because she had already <laughs> said what the answer was in her question. Like, don't you think this is a war for oil? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't you think they're not telling us the truth? <laughs> yep. <laughs> it was a great interview. <laughs> and, uh, uh, th but there are, you know, there, there are openings and apertures, uh, so you try. How many of you know who Kurt Vonnegut is? Well, yeah, a lot of you. If you don't know who Kurt Vonnegut is, you should get to know him. 
He's a novelist, a writer, remarkable writer, like no one else. And he, he wrote a, uh, his, one of his first books called Cat's Cradle. I mean, he's odd, he's weird, <laughs> he's bizarre, <laughs> and he'll admit it. <laughs> and uh, he wrote a book called Slaughterhouse-Five about the bombing of Dresden in World War II. And not a, you know, how many people know about the bombing of Dresden in World War II? How many people, you know, how many people the rest of you should know? In the midst of World War II, this war for freedom and against fascism and so on, we bombed mercilessly civilian populations, killed huge numbers of people, ordinary people, men, women, children, in German cities and Japanese cities, and Dresden a bombing 100,000 killed in one night of bombing. Kurt Vonnegut wrote a novel based on that event called Slaughterhouse-Five. It made into a movie also. Uh, but I'll tell you this about background. Just to say, he sent me a copy of a letter he sent to the Times. He's a famous man. You would think the Times would print this letter, right? He's, but he sent me a copy of the letter just so that I would know it, even if the Times didn't print it. He said, and he was obviously responding to what Bush was saying about they have weapons of mass destruction and so on. And his letter said, there's only one country in history it was crazy enough to drop a bomb on a city full of men, women, and children, reducing them to ash and cinder. That's all he says. Uh, New York Times hasn't printed it. <laughs> so it tells you something about the, how difficult it is to break through the major media. It also says that you should try. And that, you know, there are columnists around the country, even in major newspapers, who occasionally will break through. I guess all I'm saying is we try every possible avenue we can to break through. Here's what I believe. I believe the truth has a power which is greater even than their control of the media. They control a media which doesn't tell the truth, and we control very little that tells the truth. But I believe if you, the truth persists, you know, it will win out. Yes. How do we as teachers um, find this information to use in our classroom? How do you find the information? In the library. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is important. Uh, very often, where do people get their information? They get their information from television, or they get their information from the newspapers, from Time. Sometimes they think they've risen several levels intellectually if they read Time magazine, you see, or Newsweek, or whatever. But the library is the best source. The, the books are still the freest you know, area of inquiry. Sure, they're, 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 there's a lot in the library. There's a lot in the bookstores, if you look for it, uh, that it will tell you th things that you don't see in the major media. And, uh, and then, of course, there are periodicals, which are not Time and Newsweek. There's The Nation. There's the Progressive, there's Z Magazine, there's In These Times. There are periodicals that don't have huge circulations. They reach 50,000 or 60,000 people. But you will see things in, in those periodicals that you won't see anywhere else. And then there's the Internet. But it's a problem when you're talking to students and young people wonder, where can I get the truth? You know, read Noam Chomsky. That's a good start. Read the interviews that David Barsamian I'm not saying this because he's here, <laughs> but David Barsamian of Alternative Radio has conducted interviews with Noam Chomsky, with Edward Said, uh, most recently with Danny Glover, 
with uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, with uh, all sorts of people who are dissident voices in, in the culture. Wonderful interviews there on tape, uh, and you can get them from Alternative Radio in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, they're great resources. Yes. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on um, the after effects of September 11th on race relations in the United States. Talk about the after effects, not so much the effects leading to it, but after the after effects, particularly on race relations, you're saying? Well, of course, you know, I think we know the immediate after effect, despite you know, Bush's pious statement, so, you know, we mustn't discriminate against Muslims and so on. You know, uh, they're, they're, these political leaders are very good at you know, telling you how wonderful they are and how egalitarian they are. but. Of course, the fact is that almost immediately, people of dark skin, people uh, who are suspected of being Muslims, after all, you never know who really is a Muslim, people who looked different, almost immediately they were being targeted. They were being targeted in airports, and they were also being targeted by the FBI, by the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And uh, as you probably know, over a 1,000 people were picked up, people who fit that racial profile. Well, they might come from a Middle East country, they're dark-skinned, they look like hijackers. It's absurd what's happened. And, and so, you know, people of color, people who look different, have already been targeted, and over a thousand of them have already been detained, and the Constitution has been violated again and again with regard to these people, held without trial, held without right to counsel. So... It's been a big blow to the idea of uh, racial equality, which you know, presumably you know, the civil rights movement brought to the fore in, in the 1960s. And it will take a great effort on the part of the people in this country to fight against that and to resist that and uh, to demand that constitutional rights of Americans be observed. Uh, I mean, that's basically what the civil rights movement had to do that, to say, oh, here... It's, in, it's already in the Constitution. We don't even have the new law. It's there. You, you the government, are violating this. Oh, but as we know, the government is the biggest lawbreaker. Really. The government is the most serious lawbreaker. I say more, you know, more serious lawbreaker because when the government breaks the law, it does it on a large scale. It does it on a larger scale than any individual lawbreaker. And so it's up to the citizenry to remind the government of what the Constitution says. Yes? What are your thoughts about how education is being increasingly defined by standardized testing? Standardized testing. I think that's one of the most terrible things that's happened in the educational world. A wonderful way to make students stop thinking and to stop analyzing, to stop thinking critically, and to memorize dates and places. And, and the, you know, the major cultural institutions, you know, aside from, you know, the schools and the school principals and the school, you know, administrators and the school boards and, and the Congress of the United States, but cultural institutions uh, outside of the educational world uh, have you know, gone along with that simply by the emphasis they put on trivia. Do you know uh, this fact? Do you know this date? All that you know, fits in with standardized testing. You know, a number of years ago, the, the New York Times did a survey of how 
how much history was known by high school students. They do this every once in a while. You know, they like to show how dumb students are and how smart are the people who give them the tests. And so they do surveys of how much do students know about history, and, and the Times asks them questions like, who was the president during the Mexican War? What came first, the Homestead Act or the Civil Service Act? Really important issues, you know, really important issues. Now, the Times could have asked a question about the Civil War, which would not fit into standardized testing, true, false, fill in, multiple choice. We could have asked a question like about the Mexican War. How did the Mexican War start? Now, that would have been interesting. But then uh, people would have to do some research and they'd have to go into it, and they would find that the United States instigated the Mexican War, that the president, and who cares what his name is, <laughs> yeah, his name was Polk, but who cares? It could have been, you know, Clinton. But the president had his eye on Mexico, on Mexican territory. He had his eye on the great Southwest. His, he had his eye on this classroom. <laughs> he had his eye, right? This, is, this was belonged to Mexico. Um, California, you know, California, New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, and so on. This was Mexico. And Polk wanted that. He wanted a war, and so he instigated a war. Well, people did some research on that. That might lead them to question other wars. They might ask them, hey, how did other wars start? That might lead them to look at the Spanish-American War, at the Philippines War, at the World War I, that they might you know, look at the Gulf of Tonkin, they might look at the Gulf War, you know, and the Panama War. <laughs> Remember we waged recently a war against Panama? Because Panama, as you know, is a great threat to the United States. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, uh, People would learn a lot, but those questions, those multiple choice questions, those you know, uh, fill-in questions, like the Times was asking, they're, they're ridiculous. And here's the New York Times, which is the, you know, that's the top level of intellectual journalism in the United States, asking these stupid questions, which appear on standardized tests. So, you know, fortunately, there's a, a I don't know what's happening here in New Mexico, but but I know in Massachusetts there's a rebellion against standardized testing, which is, you know, which we hope will, will spread. Yes? The September 11th events and the knee-jerk reaction to create the uh, new Homeland Defense area for, uh, within the government, what, could you comment in, uh, as to the, the underlying reasons for that? That's, that's a good point about underlying reasons behind Homeland Security. That suggests that maybe the reasons they are giving are not the reasons and that there's an underlying reason. Uh, I mean, the reasons they give is that we need the Homeland Security uh, Act and, you know, eh, and all the power it gives to the Attorney General to uh, infiltrate people's lives. We need that to protect us against terrorism. Well, it's not going to protect us against terrorism. No, police rule and no rounding up of people, no fingerprinting of people, no surveying of people, no wiretapping of people is going to prevent terrorism. Uh, uh, terrorists are smarter than that. Uh, what it will do is it will wiretap and survey and intrude on the lives of millions of people in this country. 
So it's, you know, the real reason is not to do something about terrorism. Truth is they don't want, they don't want to do the things that we would have to do to do something about terrorism. The r real reason, I think, is uh, it deflects people from doing something real about terrorism. In order to do something real about terrorism, the government would have to ask the question that, oh, people are hesitant to ask. What are the grievances behind the acts of the terrorists? I mean, the terrorists are wrong because terrorism is wrong. Terrorism is morally wrong as a way of achieving something. But even the people who do things that are morally wrong, you have to ask the question, why do they do it? They're not simply maniacs who are just, for no reason at all, blowing up buildings and killing people. There's something, some nugget of something buried inside their fanaticism, which is a grievance. And the grievance that is held not just by the terrorists, but by millions of people around the world, including especially peoples in the Middle East. And it's important to know what those grievances are because if you don't do anything about those grievances, then there will be an endless supply of terrorists, no matter what you do for homeland security and surveying people. But the United States government does not want to look at those grievances. The grievances have to do with American foreign policy. The grievances have to do with the United States playing the role of a military bully in the world. We have military bases in over a, a hundred countries in the world. I mean, just think about that. We have our troops, we have our, our naval vessels in, on every sea. And it's sort of very funny, it's not funny, but it's ironic, really. That, you know, we're talking about Saddam Hussein, weapons of mass destruction. Maybe he will have one nuclear bomb. The United States has 20,000. The United States is the, has the most weapons of mass destruction in the world, by far. The United States has used weapons of mass destruction with more deadly effect than any country in the world. And we have planted ourselves all over the world, our military power, our political power, our corporate power. People resent that. Sure, Bush likes to think, you know, people really like us. Well, people actually, they like Americans as individual human beings, but they don't like the military machine. They don't like the American intrusion of corporate power into their lives. But American foreign policy, which causes these grievances, the support of, of, uh, the, support of the Israeli occupation of Palestine, the sanctions on Iraq, which have killed hundreds of thousands of people, the stationing of troops in Saudi Arabia. These are real grievances that people in the Middle East have. And so long as those grievances exist, no measures of security that you take at the airports or in the homeland security, nothing is going to stop terrorism, so long as those grievances exist. So behind homeland security is diverting our attention from the real causes of terrorism and also a very neat way to establish more governmental power over the liberties of people. More fear spread among the population about, oh, what can we do? What can we say? Will we be accused of being unpatriotic, of being treasonous, and so on? So I'm glad you asked that question, because the question that 
people should ask, questions that students should ask always is when they hear any statement by anybody in authority, especially governmental leaders, what is behind this? Uh, what is the truth behind the statement? If, after all, a study of American history, if it's a, an honest study, is a study which discloses that the governments lie. Not just our government. I mean, governments in general lie. And it's very understandable why governments lie. Governments want to stay in power. And if governments told the truth, they probably wouldn't stay in power. So they lie. And it's very important for students to whenever they hear anything coming from authority to ask the question, now wait a while, <laughs> what's the truth? What's behind that? Yes? A discussion in the social studies methods class for undergrad pre-service teachers that I teach reflected on the idea that the difference between, you know, your people's history and the standard middle school or high school textbook is quite dramatic. And if new teachers tried to teach more along your line than along the standard textbook line, they're likely to get fired. Or at least that was a concern. What advice would you give to new social studies teachers about how to deal with that dilemma? No, it's a, that's a very important question. If you depart from the regular curriculum, the regular textbooks, you're always in danger, especially in high schools, because high schools are really sort of totalitarian institutions. And teachers uh, are always at risk if they depart from the norm. And when People's History first came out, I would get letters from teachers saying, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble because of your book. <laughs> trying to make me feel guilty <laughs> and succeeding. You say, well, no. I guess secretly I would say to myself, good. <laughs> I, not that I wanted them to be in trouble, but I'm glad they're, they're taking those risks. A, a woman uh, who was teaching in a high school in uh, La Jolla, California, uh, wrote to me and said, I am, I'm under investigation. <laughs> Some parent uh, looked at the book that her kid brought home, looked at the first chapter on Columbus, and went into, you know, hysterics. C Columbus, <laughs> what is he saying? And she said, you know, your teacher must be a communist. You know, well, well you know, as we know, the communists always were against Columbus. <laughs> uh, So actually, they set up a, a committee to investigate. And what the committee, committee interrogated the students. <laughs> I can imagine these students under a searchlight. <laughs> students said to them, well, this teacher uses the people's history, but she also uses another book alongside it. And she asked us to compare, just like you're talking about comparing two books. Well, that's one way of dealing with it. Look, you know, uh, the schoolroom is a place where people are supposed, students are supposed to get diverse Viewpoints, okay, we're giving them diverse viewpoints. We're giving them this book, and we're giving them that book, this chapter, and that chapter. I mean, that's one way of dealing with the fear of using uh, an unorthodox book. The other thing, specifically in relation to a people's history, and this was not true when it first came out, because when it first came out, it was a very small number of teachers in the country who were using it. 
But now the, the People's History has sold a million copies now and is used, you see, and, uh, and, and uh, I like to brag about that. <laughs> but the point is, you know, there's, uh, there's always strength to an argument if you can say, hey, I'm not alone. <laughs> there are teachers all over the country using this book. And, you know, that carries some weight in an argument against the authority. You're listening to Howard Zinn, Questions and Answers in Albuquerque. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program and the classic Zinn books, A People's History of the United States, and You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's Alternative Radio. Dot O-R-G. Yes. Um, in, under the article we read, Collective Bandians and Human Progress, um, there's a quote, it says, and in such a world of conflict, a world of victims and executioners, it is his job of thinking people, as Albert Camus suggested, not to be on the side of the executioners. My question is, how do we impart to our students the value of being on that side? not being on the side of it? That's a very good question because there's always an issue when, when you're dealing with students. Uh, you want students to come away from your teaching with good values, and yet you don't want to bludgeon students, right? And that, that's always a very delicate matter. And sometimes in order to get, get away from the idea of bludgeoning, you don't say anything, <laughs> uh, and then, then you're safe. Uh, so the, there's a delicate matter of, of how to get students to think about the different ways of approaching the world. And, uh, and I do think this is one of the most important things to get across to students, and that is that we live in a world where we cannot simply remain aside and neutral and just observe, oh, look, look what's happening to these people and let's just look at it and study it, but let's not take sides. No, let's uh, be, the word is objective, one of the most terrible words there is. You know, we've had too many, quote, objective people. <coughs> Historically, you can point to how many objective people there were in Nazi Germany, people who watched the rise of fascism and didn't take sides. Well, people in the United States who watched racial segregation and didn't take sides. And I think it's important to go into history and to take situations where students can clearly see a right-wrong problem. You know, students can easily see racial segregation as a right-wrong problem. Students, I think, can see the issue of the maltreatment of women, inequality for women, as a right-wrong problem. They can easily see the, the monopolization of wealth at the top while people are homeless and poor below. They can see that. The moral issue is clear. And if you take is situations where the moral issue is clear, and then you say, are these problems ever going to be solved if people just observe them, stand aside, and try not to express their views 
not to participate in the changing of history, I think students will see that right off. I mean, using historical examples is always a good thing to do. Yes? As educators, we can use primary documents yes. and point out different perspectives of a particular period of time in history. I think what I'm concerned about is that how when they go home and they watch major media outlets like ABC, NBC, CBS, that the terror and the inhumanity almost becomes normalized. That's what I'm concerned about. I think that students can take a moral stand on historical events, but how does that transfer into taking a moral stand with the Palestinian issue? Yeah, of course that's more difficult. And if you just leave the historical examples and just end with discussions of the past, uh, that, that isn't enough. You can say to yourself, well, I'll leave it to my students to themselves make the connection. But no, teachers have to make the connections themselves. It, that, of course, it becomes more difficult. When you're dealing with the past, the moral issue seems clear. When you're dealing with the present, with the present, <laughs> yeah, when you're dealing with the president, you're in trouble, yes. <laughs> when you're dealing with the present, then, uh, then it's more difficult because, as you say, the present is being dealt with by the media all the time. They're, they're, getting, they're getting this heavy dose of Rumsfeld on, on television. You know, they're you know, getting monster f stories with the monsters of the government appearing on television as rational, sensible, you know, calm, judicious human beings almost. And so... Uh, yeah, and so, yeah, the teacher has a job of raising the current issues, making the connection, not expecting that the answer will be a simple one, not expecting it will be as easy as dealing with some past terrible event, but at least raising it, asking students if they see the connection, and it then becomes a, a matter, matter of discussion. Yes? I, I watch Charlie Rose sometimes, and he has Thomas Friedman on there these other guests, and they'll sit there and just a matter of factly assume that everyone agrees with them that it's okay that America establishes a global empire. And they assume that everyone agrees with that and that that's compatible with democracy. Even though we don't have a perfect democracy, it creates tremendous problems for us down the road. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on the coexistence of democracy and empire. The coexistence of democracy and empire. I guess first it's, it's very important for young people to learn about empire. To learn about empires abroad, to learn about the effects of, of the British Empire on the Middle East, let them see Lawrence of Arabia, <laughs> you see, and see how, you know, hey, you know like Lawrence thought that he, oh, he was going to help the Arab and, you know, give voice and would have an independent, no, no, those, the imperialists knew what they, they wanted control, and, and what has happened as a result of imperial control, uh, we see despotism all over the Middle East and people still living in misery. See the results of British rule in India. I mean, why did, why did Gandhi, why was he able to arouse an enormous population against the British because of the effects of the British Empire on India? What about the Belgian Congo? Millions of people were killed by the Belgians in their search for, you know, uh, rubber, gold, you know, the various 
uh, goodies of the Belgian Congo. People should learn something about the effects of imperialism, and then they should turn to American imperialism, because that's something that's a kind of different concept and not easy to accept, that we are an imperial power. But when people learn our history and they see our history of expansion across the continent, our expansion into the Caribbean, our expansion into Hawaii and the Philippines, and after World War II, our expansion all over the world, yes, uh, here's the American empire. And what's the connection between that and democracy? When you have an empire and when you have a military machine controlling and extending that empire, you cannot allow criticism of, of that empire to get too powerful. There's too much at stake. And the result is that you have, well, what you were describing on Charlie Rose's show, you have the m major media, the television networks, and you have the newspapers not questioning the fact that the United States should be an empire. And when they don't question, democracy is immediately crippled. Democracy depends on people questioning what the United States is doing, not only in this country, but what it's doing abroad. And then, uh, you know, people can learn that whenever the United States has engaged in war, the civil liberties of people have been attacked, and people have gone to jail for criticizing wars, and that this has been true, you know, in every war that we've had. And another thing that I think should be pointed out is that there's no democracy in the making of foreign policy. There's some degree of democracy in domestic policy because with domestic policy, well, domestic policy affects people in this country. They can see what its effects are. Working people can organize. Black people, Hispanic people can organize. They can see the effects of domestic policy. The effects on foreign policy happening to other people. There's no information about that. The government tries to control the information about that. If there's no information on a situation, there's no democracy. Because there's no, if you don't get the information, if the government secretly does things, then you cannot have a democratic discussion of what the government is doing. And also, the mechanism of foreign policy doesn't have democracy in it. And by that, I mean wars are made by the president and the people around him. Visible people around him, like his security advisors, invisible people around him, like the heads of the major corporations in the country. Uh, they are the people who make the decisions on foreign policy. Nobody else is involved. Congress is not involved, really. You know, occasionally you hear a pipsqueak. <laughs> From, you, know, you hear a little sound emanating from Congress. Oh, he, he's bypassing us. He's not, you know, we, we want to vote on this. If we vote, we'll say yes. <laughs> you, you look at all the times when Congress has had an opportunity to vote on wars. Always yes. Okay, yeah. Now it's okay. We said yes. You see, of course, you know, sometimes the president bothers to consult Congress. Sometimes... Since World War II, the president has not even bothered to get a congressional declaration of war. So there are some people on the left and some critics of the government, say, who make their argument against war based on the fact that Congress has not voted. I think that's a mistake. If Congress did vote, it would support the war. <laughs> so, you know, to 
It's a very weak kind of argument. It's dodging the issue of whether the war is right or wrong. If the war is wrong, then it doesn't matter if Congress approves it. The people are the ultimate in a democracy. They're the ultimate source of authority. So there's no democracy in the making of foreign policy. The only time there's democracy in foreign policy is when you have a national movement that insists on saying something about foreign policy. The Vietnam War is that rare example where you had a, a national movement build up over a number of years which said we have to get out of Vietnam. And then when it became national and when the GIs resisted and wouldn't fight and deserted and formed organizations and when you know, people all over the country, you know, then uh, the government, uh, finally we had democracy and foreign policy. Yes. We hear uh, more and more discussion about the U.S. government providing reparations for African Americans, <laughs> and many African Americans are opposed to reparations because they feel it's a, a handout, and many whites are opposed because they feel they shouldn't have to bear the expense for the crimes committed by people in the past. My question is, how do you see the residual effects? of slavery and the institution of slavery impacting this discussion today uh, about reparations? Yeah, the reparations issue is a, a tough one to deal with. You can't discuss the reparations issue without going into the history of slavery and the history of segregation. You can't go into the question of where black people are in this country and what policies to have in relation to black people without understanding the legacy of slavery and segregation has been such that among the poor in this country, black people have a disproportionate number. Among that all the statistics for terrible things that happen in this country, infant mortality, people in prison, black people have a disproportionate number. It must come out of this historic, long, long period of discrimination and lack of opportunity, which are, we are still still dealing with today. So the, that history is very important. You can't just wipe it out and say, you know, we're, <laughs> we're on a pl level playing field. Well, David was telling me about Arundhati Roy gives this metaphor about the so-called level playing field. It's not a level playing field. It's, it's an incline, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, you think you're playing marbles on a on a level playing field, but no, all the marbles are going down <laughs> and they're ending up in somebody else's hands, you see. Uh, no, it's not level. So you have, to, you have to start with that. But you can't stop with that. You can't say, okay, we had slavery and so on, and therefore we should have reparations. I think, I think you have to ask the question of what would be the just and right thing to do? Yes, it would be right to recognize that the black people today are to a great extent suffering because of this historic legacy of segregation. Should something be done about that? Yes. Should people be given th things that they were never given before because they would, it was denied to them for a long time? Yes. Now, of course, that doesn't only apply to black people. That applies to poor people in general. I mean, <laughs> Poor people d didn't go through slavery, but they went through wage slavery. They went through exploitation. 
poor people of, of all kinds and all colors, black and white, went through all of that. And the result is a country in which the wealth is concentrated at the top, and there are people who, who are really struggling and struggling below, disproportionately people of color, but still people of all colors. My attitude towards reparations is to make it multicultural. <laughs> that is, that, uh, and it's not a matter of a handout. The rich have been given the biggest handouts. That's where the handouts have been. <laughs> you know, the people say, you know, if you tax the rich, is that fair? Yes. <laughs> yes, of course it's fair. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but I, w I, would, I would make reparations multicultural in the sense that, you know, I would change the distribution of wealth in the country and uh, make sure that everybody, black people, white people who, who are in need, get what they need, get a, a decent housing, get a basic um, guaranteed income, get uh, free health care. That would be making up for all, for slavery, for wage exploitation, for the long history of the monopoly of the country's wealth by a small number at the top. First bilingual education, what are your views on the No Child Left Behind Act? No Child Left Behind. That's interesting. <laughs> I love their slogans. Yeah. But you know, No Child Left Behind was the slogan, I don't know if you know this, was the slogan of the Children's Defense Fund. Did you know that? You know, Children's Defense Fund is a group in Washington, D.C. that has fought for years, years for the rights of children. Who picks up the slogan? Bush. It's like during the Vietnam War, <coughs> Lyndon Johnson said, we shall overcome. It was the slogan of the Civil Rights Movement. And suddenly, here is Lyndon Johnson. You know, come off it. <laughs> yeah. uh, bi well, bilingual education. I mean, people should learn whatever languages are useful, whatever languages. Sure, they should learn English, but they should learn you know, I, I believe that everybody in this country should have bilingual education, whether they're of Spanish descent or not. I mean, there are I enough Spanish people in this country, so that if you, if you don't speak Spanish, you're, you're at a disadvantage. It would just be, you know, a good, good thing to do. Yes? I was going to share with my class tomorrow, I, People's History Book, but there's a part in there I thought maybe you can share it instead of me. It's one of the chapters on civil rights in your book. And it's, in the, it's an illustration of how people in power can manipulate and use different ways to appease people. But it's the part where Kennedy's president, it's the March on Washington in about 63, and so it knows that there's a lot of people coming to Washington to protest, and the government's busy trying to find out who might be a speaker for that. Could you, do you remember? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do remember. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm glad you remember. <laughs> uh, no, it is, it is an interesting illustration of how a, a clever establishment takes advantage of the fact that, wow, we have all these people going to demonstrate. They're going to demonstrate anyway. We, we don't have enough police to suppress them, so we'd better control the demonstration and, and give them coffee and donuts, you know? <laughs> and so. Kennedy had private conferences with the leaders of the civil rights movement and saying, okay, you know, have your demonstration, uh, but, you know, we hope you won't uh, get too excited. 
and uh, uh, will be moderate and you w you'll you know maintain control and don't let things get out of hand uh, don't let people march down Pennsylvania Avenue. Let them all gather nicely, you know, but at the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, and all of it. Let's, you know, let, let's control things. Uh, and uh, the, the best, actually the best account of this is given by Malcolm X. But it was a wonderful speech that Malcolm X made a few months after the March on Washington in, in 1963, and this was two years before he was killed. It's called Message to the Grassroots, and in it he talks about the March on Washington, and he talks about how it was controlled, and how they, they set the limits, so you, you can have these signs and you can't have those signs, you, you can walk on these streets but not on those streets, you, you come at this time and you leave at that time. He really poured uh, his very effective rhetoric on this. You know, almost as an illustration of the, the control of the movement. To remember, uh, a month later, the bombing took place in Birmingham where f four uh, black girls were killed, you know, in, in a church bombing. Malcolm X was pointing to a phenomenon which happens again and again. That's why they don't like things that happen in Seattle, you know. You know, all these marching through the streets and we don't know where they're going. <laughs> you know, no, we want to know exactly where they're going, you know, <laughs> exactly what they're, no. Well, one of the things that happened is that they controlled the speeches that were made at the, at the March on Washington. What you, you and you all hear, you all know the Martin Luther King speech, I Have a Dream, and so on. Well, one of the speakers uh, was John Lewis, uh, who was the head of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was sort of the leading edge of the civil rights movement in the South, young people who came out of the sit-ins, fanned out throughout the South, and a and, uh, very courageous young group who worked uh, against racial segregation all over the, the most dangerous places in the South. And John Lynn Lewis was one of the speakers on the platform, and he pre prepared a speech. And the other leaders in the, the civil rights movement uh, looked at it and said, well, I, I don't think you should say this, because his speech was denouncing the federal government, uh, which meant the Kennedy administration as well as, you know, the other administrations, because the Kennedy administration was not a friend of the civil rights movement, although it pretended to be. John Lewis's speech was, in effect, censored by the other leaders of the civil rights movement who wanted to placate the Kennedy administration. Don't you think we continue that tradition when we continue to talk about race relations and black and white, Bill, because that was, that particular march was very pivotal in that also, and again, kind of an institutionalization of the movement, uh, argument that I was trying to talk about a while ago in terms of what did civil rights really do for us? Was it really merely just a, a negotiation between white supremacy at that point and the conservative middle class? black representatives who <coughs> pretended to represent Indian people, Chicano people, or whatever, and that, and that was obviously addressed by Malcolm X, but how, what do we do about it now in 2002? I think maybe what you're talking about is not being controlled even by our own supposed leaders. You know, the leaders of movements themselves uh, tend to get closer and closer to the establishment. 
It happens in trade unions. People in the trade union movement have a lot of experience with this. You know, somebody becomes a shop steward, and then somebody becomes a union official. And then the union official starts meeting with the bosses. And soon the union official is wearing a shirt and tie, and you can't tell the difference between the union official and the bosses. And soon the thinking of the union official, you know, that happens on, on that level. And it happens in, in movements. And what it means is that people, you know, must always hold on to rank and file of power, must, must never surrender their power to movement leaders, and must always understand that, that uh, power does corrupt. Uh, people who have the power over movements are in always in danger of being corrupted. So you always need grassroots checkup on what uh, movements are doing. Yes. Could you comment briefly on um, the Trilateral Commissions and whether or not maybe their, their belief in the excess of democracy in the United States is maybe a motivation for some of the changes? That's, uh, uh, that's an interesting point about the Trilateral Commission. I think you're referring, in fact, to the Trilateral Commission, which was, you know, s af after the Vietnam War, this, tri this very high-level, semi-secret Trilateral Commission uh, was strategizing about, whoa, we better do something. What are these movements, the anti-war movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, and, and so they, uh, they commissioned this uh, political science professor at Harvard, Samuel Huntington, to write a, a report, and then his report, he said, well, you know, the, the movements, these movements created a great distrust of authority. We had, and that's the phrase he used, an excess of democracy. Uh, a great phrase, an excess of democracy. And what he was saying, in fact, we'd better figure out a strategy uh, so that uh, this doesn't happen again, so that we don't have this rebellion against authority. And you might say that the history of the American government since the end of the Vietnam War has been an attempt to destroy that spirit of rebellion that arose in the 1960s to control people more. Everything the government has been doing, the, kind, the way it has waged wars, the way it has established control, the way it has made liaisons with the major media, uh, right up to the Homeland Security Act, I think all of that but it's important to take note of that. They don't want an excess of democracy. Our job is to have an excess of democracy. Yeah. Yeah. That was Howard Zinn, Questions and Answers in Albuquerque, a special program celebrating the Zinn centenary. He spoke to students and faculty at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque in September 2002. Howard Zinn was perhaps this country's premier radical historian. He passed away in 2010. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're independent and supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature such progressive voices as Noam Chomsky, Arundhati Roy, Chris Hedges, Naomi Klein, and David Suzuki. And we've almost 50 programs with Howard Zinn. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. You can get copies of this program and the classic Zinn books, A People's History of the United States, and You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. 
Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.